You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Chapter 4. We're nearing, nearing the end of this series, at least in the first letter of John, before we get into the final two and shorter letters. As I was preparing this message and thinking about the theme of love, I was reminded of a silly syllogism that was passed along in my youth group days. It went something like this. God is love. Love is blind. Stevie Wonder is blind. Stevie Wonder is recall you fill in the blank. Well, just as flawed as that silly logic is, on the other extreme, we see the brilliant logic of John, who establishes not once but twice this eternal truth that God is love, and begins to spell out the implications. If that is true, and if we've been loved by God, what does that mean for us as Christians? To live a life of love and fellowship with God and with one another. Please follow as I read 1 John 4, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made perfect, made complete in us. We know that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let us pray. Father, 
we come to this text and we are amazed once again at the magnitude, the greatness, the richness of your love for us as expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also come to this text humbled by how weak, how meager, how far short we fall the standard of love. Forgive us sinners. Forgive us loveless ones. And help us, O Lord, to come back to the throne of grace, to find strength and mercy and encouragement that we too might grow in the love of God, in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Begin this sermon reflecting upon my most important love relationship in this life, which would be with my wife Stacy. Our relationship from the very beginning was a long distance relationship. We met out of state on a mission project in South Carolina. She was from the north in Wisconsin. I was from Texas. We were met during our college years, and we actually began our dating relationship as the project was ending, as we were going back home. And for the next year, we endured and maintained and grew a long-distance relationship. On the way up here this evening, Stacy and I were calculating how many times we actually saw each other over the course of that year. And we actually counted, I think it was no more than ten times that we were actually physically together, and they were not short visits. These were like long weekend and week-long visits up north and down south. About ten times until we got engaged. And then between engagement and the wedding, it was only about twice. And so the burden was on us to spend a lot of time on the phone, writing letters, emailing, sending each other care packages and in listings of music and little gifts and things to continue to nurture and grow our love relationship. I was talking with my parents recently, and they informed me that they had recently, with their phone service, their uh, cellular phone service, got what's called unlimited long distance. Many of you may have that service. In fact, that would have been a wonderful service had that been available back when Stacey and I were dating to save much on our, on our phone bill. In a long-distance relationship, there, there's a need for maintaining the means of communication. And in an, un, an unlimited offer is a wonderful buy. And it speaks to us of the unlimited nature of God's love for us in Christ. Three times... In this text, John reminds us that God sent his son to us, implying that there was great distance between us, that there was a great barrier to cross. And God, in his love, sent his son a long way to come and be with us. This past week, I read a touching story in the newspaper. You may have saw it Tuesday or Wednesday it was a story of an officer, a captain in the army, serving in Iraq and his wife giving birth to their third child at Women and Babies Hospital. And thankfully, through some technology and through a service at the hospital, this captain, this young father, 
was able to be in the room during the delivery of their child. And through Skype, through internet technology, satellite technology, and the computer, he was able to be there. And there's that story of this, one of his older daughters touching the screen and crying out, Daddy, as they were welcoming their, their new sister and new baby into the world. There's a couple who has to maintain a long-distance relationship with great intentionality, with tremendous intensity, so that they might maintain and grow in their love for one another. You, are not, you and I cannot see God. We cannot hear God audibly, and we, in our weakness, are prone to forget God to forget about his love for, for us. And consequently, we neglect and fail to love one another. And so as we come to this text, we need to be reminded about the great extent that the Father sent his Son over a long distance to teach us the nature of love that goes the distance. We come to verses 7 through 10, and I almost find in these verses kind of a a revisiting of the matter I preached on three weeks ago from chapter 3 when we talked about what love is. And John, in his repetitious way, comes back to these themes over and over again. And what we find in verses 7 through 10 about the nature of love, we find here that in verses 7 through 9 that love is a matter of life. But also in verse 10, love is a matter of death. We read in verse 7, this command, this command repeated over and over again by the apostle of love. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. He gives the reason why we ought to love one another. Because God is love. Because love comes from God the Father. And he goes on to explain, to give us a reason why we should love, because everyone who loves has been born of God. Everyone who loves in a truly genuine, sacrificial way bears evidence that he has been born of God. He has experienced the new birth in Christ. As Pastor Rogers highlighted earlier, we've enjoyed three new births this week. Those births that were, were began by an act of loving initiation. And ideally in this world, children are born out of a love relationship. Where a mature couple initiate the process of birth out of love and commitment and sacrifice to one another. Likewise, our birth began with the initiation of God to create life. To begin a new relationship with creatures made in his image. It also says that not only everyone who loves has been born of God, but also knows God. We've compared Christianity to other religions before and reckoned that the major difference between Christianity and world religions is that Christianity is not really a religion, it's a relationship. It's not about works righteousness. It's not about rules. 
It's ultimately about intimacy with a personal God. A God who is knowable. He is not aloof. He is not far separated from this world that we cannot know him or anything about him. No, he has come near to us that we may know him. Even as he already knows us better than we know ourselves. To counter this evidence of one loving God, we get the counter evidence in verse 8. When John says that whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Claiming to know God but to fail in love is like claiming to know a foreigner. But not knowing that person's language at all. And being unable to communicate whatsoever. It's like claiming to have been born of parents. Whom you don't have any resemblance or likeness. There's a disconnect. And so we cannot say we know God if we have not love. Here is the first of, tw- of two times John says tritely, God is love. There's only two or three other so descriptions of God in the scriptures both coming from the writings of John. We learn in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. Earlier in 1 John in chapter 1, we learn that God is light. And so to put the spotlight on the core attributes of God, we learn that that love is not something man-made. Love is not something that has evolved over millions of years of evolution. Love is a core characteristic of the creator of the universe. It's at the very base of his existence. That's fully manifest in the creation and in the redemption of sinners. And this is how we know that God has shown his love for us. In verse 9, for the first time, God has sent his Son His only begotten Son. This means the Son. The one and only. The one who is eternally begotten of the Father. Who is always at His side. And He sent His Son that we might live through Him. We all spiritually died in our first father, Adam. And yet, by faith, we are made alive the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 5, 26 records these words of Jesus when he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And so it has been granted unto us that we may have life in him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, not only is love a matter of life, love is also a matter of death. For he goes on a second time in verse 10 to explain what love is. Not only is love the fact that God sent his son that we might live through him. It is love that God would send his son to make an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
John here is elaborating on how it is that we know what love is. It's a blunt reminder, first, that we did not love God. It was not our request. It was not something we earned or merited. That God's initiation act was not in response to our love for him or our desire for him, but rather we've been given life by the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so from the world of agriculture, we get this illustration to understand that life is born out of death. Jesus was sent as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins, to come and die in our place. He is our substitute, the one whose death has satisfied the righteous requirements of God's law. That through his death, he has appeased the holy wrath of God to spare you and I from eternal punishment. Romans 3.25, Paul writes, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so it was a matter of justice, something that God cannot sweep away. God cannot turn a blind eye (coughs) towards our sin, but his justice required a perfect sacrifice. And it was his love and mercy that compelled him to take on the task himself. Because you and I could not do it. As we addressed before in this series on love, it was very common in the ancient world to think that love was something that you only gave to people who were worthy of love. This idea that God which sent his son to unworthy sinners, to ill-deserving sinners, was a completely radical new concept. God loved us, not because we loved him back, not because we were deserving of his love, but because God is love and sought to magnify his own glory by expressing his immeasurable love to guilty sinners. And so we come to this point with a summary of three truths about the love of God that would compel us to a life of brotherly love. First, that God is love in verses 8 and 9. Secondly, because of God's love for us expressed in seeing his son to give us life and to die in our place, verses 10 and 11. And thirdly, If we are to love one another, because God lives in us, and his love is made perfect in us. And so we come to verses 11 through 16, which I describe under the category of abiding in God's love. So we've already looked at the nature of God's love revisited. Now we consider how it is that we abide in God's love. And I use that term because in these verses... The word abide, the verb that means remain, shows up four times in this text. It's the same term that Jesus uses in the I am the vine, 
you are the branches illustration of John 15. If we are to remain with God, if we are to abide with him, if we are to fellowship with him, we are to grow and be perfected in love. And so, verse 11, with the unflinching logic of the apostle, since God has loved us, so we must love one another. Love is our mark of authenticity. Mark, love is what confirms our pedigree as legitimate children of God. You and I cannot return to a life of selfishness. Once we have seen the magnitude of God's love for us in Christ. And this love to which we are abide is both visual in verses 12 through 14 and relational. It's both visual and relational. In verse 12, John simply reminds us that no one has ever seen God. Abraham saw a smoking fire pot passing between the torn carcasses of animals, symbolizing God's commitment to keep his covenant with his people, even if the people themselves should fail to keep that covenant. Moses saw a theophany of God's presence in a burning bush. It says in Exodus 24, I believe, that Moses and the elders were up on Mount Sinai eating and drinking in the presence of God. And later, Moses would see the backside of the Lord's glory, but not the full manifestation of God's presence. The parents of Samson, the judge, were greatly terrified when they thought that they had seen God in the angel's visit and yet did not die. You and I have not seen God. Unbelievers around us have not seen God. And yet it says here that when we love others, we demonstrate the reality of God's love that is in us. And since no one has seen God, we must give them the opportunity to see his love in us. And it's this love that can only be made perfect as we put it into practice. My son's baseball team is coming to the end of their season this week, and it's been a long season. It was a tough season. After about nine losses, they finally had their first win on Saturday. But that win only came through hard work, through practice. And I've enjoyed watching my son grow and mature and gain confidence, and to go out there Saturday and pitch four innings straight and get three hits and begin to mature as a baseball player. As any athlete knows, as anybody in education or any type of training knows, you must practice to be perfect. How much practice do you give to love? Do you have a love coach? Do you have someone coaching you in love? Do you have a trainer who, who will spend the time to train you how to grow in love? 
If love is to be the shining characteristic of our lives, would it not make sense that we spend the time and the effort and energy to grow and perfecting our love? We, we, we spend so much time and money and energy on so many other things. How much of our time and energy do we spend on growing and perfecting our love? Verse 13 tells us that we know that we live in him and that he lives in us because he has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit is another sign, another confirmation of our identity as believers. It's a stamp of God's approval that we belong to him if we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 14, John goes on to say, That he has seen, not just he, but we, meaning he and the apostolic company, have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Love was so visualized in John's life that he would be willing to stake his life on it a thousand times. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, That which we have seen with our eyes, that we have heard, that our hands have touched, that which was made tangible to see and to touch and to smell. John was absolutely convinced that this was the Savior of the world, sent into the world for us. Jesus tells a great parable of the sending father. There's an owner of a major of a vineyard who hires tenants to work the vineyard for him, and he goes off far away. And in time, the owner sends his servants to collect payment from these tenant farmers. And the tenant farmers turn wicked. And rather than make payments, they take those servants and they beat them. They take the next one and they stone him. And finally, they take another one and kill him and throw him out. Well, in a sign of great patience and perseverance, the owner of the vineyard chooses to send his son Perhaps they will respect my son, he reasons. But when the tenant farmers see this son of the owner coming, they turn to one another in great glee. This is the heir. Let's kill him. So the vineyard may be ours. And they take him, they slay him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. Jesus, of course, is telling the story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament. And the story that will be consummated in his own death, his rejection by God's own people, cast out of the vineyard. God so loved the world that he sent his son and trusted him into the hands of enemies who took him and slew him, that we may have life in his name. Love is visual. Love is also Relational. John says in verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. Those who acknowledge the lordship and the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes the same message in Romans chapter 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And friend, if you are searching for God, 
If you lack assurance of what it means to be a Christian, this is it right here. That you must acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and you will bow to no other. And that you will humbly acknowledge him, not only your Lord, but your Savior, the one who died in your place. And if you believe that, you can have assurance of eternal life and to know this love that is beyond this world. He goes on in verse 16 to say that we know and we rely on the, on the love that God has for us. This idea of relying, we're, we're leaning upon God's love. It's not our own love that sustains us. It makes me think of an elderly couple who have been together for 50, 60 years. They're kind of hobbling their way into church and kind of holding themselves up. And likewise, in my wife and I in our young marriage, I humbly recognize that I cannot do what I do without my wife. Nor can she carry out her responsibilities before God without me. We need one another. Love requires relationship. We rely and depend upon one another. And so for the second time, John must remind us, God is love. And the one who lives in love is truly living in God. And it is God that lives in me. It's expressed in that holy love. As I mentioned before, Christianity is not a religion. Rather, it is a love relationship. I can think back to my days of my youth in infatuation with girls. And I would describe my pursuit of girls as chasing. I was a mere sprinter in love. I was not ready for long-distance running in love until I met my wife. It's not till you learn to go the distance that you are ready for a mature love relationship. And that's what God seeks in us. It's not just sprinters, but long-distance runners who can go the distance. Verses 17 through 21 establish a third point for us, that love, that the goal of love, the goal of God in love is to make us perfect in love. He says in verse 17 that this love is made complete, is made perfect in us. Paul says something in Philippians 1.60, the effect of that work which God first began in you, he is confident that it will be carried on to completion, to perfection. So our goal is maturity. Our goal is growth unto perfection. In this case, it is love. Why? In verse 17, so that we may be confident on the day of judgment. So that we can stand before our returning Savior without fear, without shame, it says here in verse 17. Friends, you must realize that this journey in this life is but a little blip on the scale of eternity in which we are preparing for, a, for an eternal life of intimacy with the living God. 
And what a radical disjunction is facing us. If we are failing to grow and to be perfected in love. That which will be perfected in that great day. May we learn to grow and mature even in this life. I mentioned earlier that couple who are separated by many thousands of miles while the captain, the husband and father, is serving in Iraq. I've heard of stories that come back from the field of a chaplain serving sadly in Iraq. He sadly reports stories of great rejection as he ministers to his men, his soldiers fighting, who receive sad news from their girlfriends and their wives who cannot bear the strain of the distance between them. And so abandon and reject the relationship. And such chaplains are working overtime to help those who are suffering such great emotional stress. And for other soldiers, there's a, a difficulty of readjustment. After having spent a tour of duty for a year overseas, coming back home is not just a smooth transition. There's a lot of hard work that goes on between this returning husband and his wife who has learned to get along without him, learning to re-engage and readjust to mold their lives back together again. That takes hard work. And so it is while they are apart, they must work hard at maintaining and nurturing that love relationship. Letters and emails and gifts and teleconferencing and Skyping, all of these means possible that may grow and maintain the relationship and be ready for that day of reunion so that it is not this radical readjustment. Friend, the picture is the same for you and I. God has given us all of these means to respond to him, to grow in him, to receive his grace and his mercy and his love. He wants us to abide with him, to walk with him, to grow in his love so that on that great and awesome day of reunion, it will be a smooth transition. What do you anticipate on the day of Christ's return? Is your Christian life no more than fire insurance? Or can you honestly say that your relationship with Christ is intimate and personal and one characterized by growing and abiding in the love and intimacy of God? And such a relationship, as John says in verse 18, is not based on fear. Because there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Our relationship with the Father is not about punishment. Yes, God disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines his son. But our relationship with God is not one of fear. That somehow God's going to get me if I don't perform for him, that I don't live up to his expectations and standards. Now, we must be reassured constantly that God intends our ultimate good. That everything in our life, all of our trials, all of our hardships, are by the will and the purpose of God to grow us, to make us perfect in love. Peter was driven by fear when he denied Christ three times before a servant girl. 
Peter was also driven by fear when he shrunk back from fellowship with the Gentiles when brothers came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. Fear can so consume and captivate our lives because we fail to focus on that which is eternal. We're driven by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. Parents who are driven by fear in raising their children simply drive their children away. But parents who are driven by love and the way they teach and correct and discipline their children prepare them for maturity. And so it's been instilled in parents the same principle to raise their children not out of fear, but out of love. We love, he says in verse 19, because he first loved us. My wife and I have enjoyed our children doting upon our newborn baby. And they do that because they see mommy and daddy doing that. And it's beautiful when love becomes an affectionate thing, a a spontaneous expression of love and devotion and affection upon a newborn child that thrives when well-loved in a caring home. We love because God first loved us. And so in the final verses, John must correct this notion that anyone can say, I love God, and yet hates his brother. Such a person is a liar. It's a contradiction in terms to claim some false piety and yet a life manifested by hatred towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Children cannot hate one of their siblings and yet be faithful in loving their parents. Love for mom and dad is manifest in love for one another. I mentioned the last time we approached this text three weeks ago that the elder brother in the famous prodigal son story failed to love his father because he failed to love his little brother. He betrays his hatred of the father characterized by his resentment towards the prodigal. And so, in many ways, the elder brother was just as lost as the little brother. Friends, we have an elder brother in Jesus Christ who did not resent us when we went astray. He did not leave us in the pigsty to wallow around in the muck and the mire. We did not have an elder brother who resented the call of his father to send him over great distance and to suffer great trials in our place but went gladly, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorning its shame. Jesus went the distance for you and I that we might know the eternal love of God the Father. This past Sunday, we noticed in the Sunday paper a listing of those who participated in the Red Rose Run. And we saw lots of familiar names. Dale Weaver, 
some of the Hivner family, the Keel family. Troy DeBruin was on there with an impressive showing last weekend. And as I looked at that stats, it had everyone's times. I've never seen that before. They list everyone's times and how they did. And it struck me, when we arrive in heaven, when we arrive at that great, awesome reunion day, if there's going to be any measure, if there's going to be any stats listed, it's not going to be based upon how good we are, how faithful in church, how often we pray. It's going to be measured in love. There was a Broadway musical put out a good 10, 15 years ago called Rent. And in that very secular in many ways, immoral show, there's a song that, that asks the question, how do you measure a year? In time? In accomplishments? In how much money you make? No, the answer is you measure a year in love. The secular source got it right, that ultimately things will be measured in love. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that matters, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Friend, you and I are called to go the distance in love. But we go the distance only by running with him and in him who went the distance on our behalf, through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you did not spare your Son, but you sent him over long distance. You sent him to come to give us life, to die in our place, to communicate to us this incredible love that we might participate in the fellowship and the love of the triune God forever and ever. Help us, O Lord, by your grace, to go the distance in love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.